0: Hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez.
1: And I'm Steve Adelman.
0: Okay, guys, you made it to part two of our conversation, which we started where we were talking about crowd science and people's impression in the media of how crowds work, And we talked about the hierarchy of controls. And this is part two of that. It's going to be a little bit, uh, if you thought we were meandering last time, we're going to meander again this time, but it's going to be a slightly different tone, I think. Uh, probably fewer references, more uh, how people work. So, maybe a little bit more psychology. So, not that long ago from when we're recording this, which is at the end of January, the Weather Planning for Mass Gatherings workshop. And uh, next year, you guys should try to come either virtually or in person. It's always a fantastic event. Uh, and it's obviously about weather, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, we, are, we talk about in, in those types of trainings, um, normalization of deviance, as in, it always has seemed to work in the past. Uh, in, in live events in the theater world, it's called, I've done it this way a hundred times. <laughs> uh, so, Steve... Has this great publication called Edelman on Venues, and if you don't subscribe to it, I strongly recommend that you do. And to do that, you email our friend Steve at
1: s. Edelman, so s. a. d. e. l. m. a. n. at edelmanlawgroup. dot com.
0: And in the most recent one that I that we got, he talks about paint, the weather summit, <laughs> and and this sentence that actually fostered the conversation we had before this one and this one. Uh, Do you want to read it since it's your words.
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, So here's a dramatic reading from the most recent Edelman on Venues uh, dated January 22, which is now on my Edelman Law Group website. Uh, Here's the sentence. It's hard to convince people unsafe practices really are dangerous when disaster is usually avoided anyway. And- There you go. This is something that I talked about at some length. Frankly, it was the entirety of my um, my main presentation at the Weather Planning for Mass Gatherings workshop a couple of weeks ago in Austin, Texas, um, which at that time I paraphrased as how to talk to your grumpy boss about the importance of meteorological science as opposed to just relying on your cell phone app for weather information when you have a mass gathering in your venue. Um, And the reason that that was an issue was because I didn't have a speaking role the first day. And so I was just hanging around monitoring the chat and several people wrote, how do I talk to my grumpy boss? You know, here you are telling me about the importance of science and why weather apps are not good enough when you have lots of people in your care okay i get it but how do i talk to my boss cuz my boss is focused on the bottom line on you know not spending money that they don't need to spend because most of the time the storm doesn't hit most of the time nothing bad happens you know no one gets hit by lightning and even if the evacuation is slower than we want people just get wet, you know, they, they dry off and it's all fine. Nothing bad happens. So in that context, how do I talk to my grumpy boss?
0: Yeah. So if you guys have ever read through an after incident report, and I'm not talking about, you know, somebody tripped over your loose cable backstage and you've got to write it up because they twisted their ankle. I'm talking about like a major one done by insurance or law enforcement or some sort of investigator Their conclusion, most of the time, they will rate it as a system failure. Now, you're like, a system failure? Like, the rigging system failed? The rigging? No. All of the various things that normally would protect from that one bad thing happening all failed. And because they all failed, that is why the person was hurt. That is why the stage fell. That is why the people died. That is... You know, it, it could be a, a smaller uh, smaller impact thing. And that is why near miss reporting is so important so that you can see where your systems are hanky. Uh, because nothing bad happened with your near miss. That doesn't mean that your system is as structurally sound. And again, I'm not talking about engineering in this case. I'm talking about the other kind of system. Um, We have another way of talking about this that you guys have heard us talk about in the past or you've seen it in other things that we call it the Swiss cheese model, you know, and this got real popular uh, during the pandemic mitigation phase when everybody was talking about that that Swiss cheese model is each slice of Swiss cheese with the holes in it. If, as long as the holes don't all line up exactly, you have protection from each thing. Is any one of those slices of cheese, perfect? Absolutely not. But you're limiting your risk by your, uh, by having as many of those somewhat porous things between you and the hazard, which takes us back to our hierarchy of controls from the last (laughs) pops. So,
1: the, the fun thing about the Swiss cheese model is that we get to say, you know, with big bright lights around <laughs> it, we can be saved by saved cheese. Saved by the cheese. Saved by cheese. How fantastic an image is that? <laughs> but are both thrilled the, by this. <laughs> we are such nerds. We're delighted <laughs> by the idea of delighted saying, by this. anyway saved by cheese. But the, the point is actually important, and it's important in a couple of respects. One respect, so this is basically a two-sided coin. Stick with this. It, it's a little complicated, but you'll get it and you'll, you know, the light bulb will go off and you say, oh my God, save by cheese and this too. Um, the Swiss cheese model is all about how even multiple failures of some risk mitigation system will not doom you to a catastrophe so long as one risk mitigation system does work. That's the save by cheese. That's when the holes line up and they line up and they line up until suddenly they don't, until there's one slice that may have a hole, but it's in a different place. And so it the point of that, and really this is what the Swiss cheese model is intended to convey, is we understand that any one risk mitigation measure may not work. To err is human, you know, written in the 1700s by some philosopher. um, But we all know it's true. We all make mistakes all the time, whether large or small. Usually there is not disaster and catastrophe at our events. Thank goodness. So the Swiss cheese model gives us a clue about why. Because even though we fail at things all the time, any one system that doesn't fail will cause there to not be a catastrophe. That's great. That underscores the importance of engaging in risk mitigation, of thinking through the questions that Danielle and I meandered through in part one of this conversation. Okay, so the Swiss cheese model in its intended form, is talking about the importance of engaging in risk mitigation because any one measure will save you from calamity. Let's now flip the coin upside down.
0: In an example, uh, we can do an electrical safety thing. So let's say uh, I just did a workshop with our friend of the pod, Richard Kadina. He is fabulous. And he's an expert on electrical and live events. So if you have to work in an electrical panel first of all you have to be qualified if you're not qualified you should not be in it at all that's that's a slice of cheese right there if you are in the area there's there's an uh, amount of space you're supposed to give people that are working on electricity you shouldn't be all crowded up around it it's another slice of cheese you should turn the power off and i'm I'm assuming we're not talking about live work right now because that is a different level. And and frankly, hopefully in, in our industry, we are getting away from hot work. Um, First of all, it should be off. Second of all, it should be checked that it is off. Third, you should be using the correct tools to work on the electrical. You should be wearing the right clothing, including shoes and undergarments and you should not be working alone and you should know the consequences of what you touch and what you connect. And then when you do energize things, you know where to check it, where to meter it, to make sure that what is happening is all. So, so an error in there, any, those, are, those are a whole bunch of places that are protective of the person doing the work and the people downstream of the person doing the work. And a system failure would be 100% of those failing. So Steve, if we flip the switch cheese upside down, what is the other, what, what's another way to look at it?
1: So the other way to look at it is we have this series of failures and yet nothing bad happens. There is a lesson to be learned there, which in some contexts we call near misreporting, where we're encouraged to note failures, even when they don't yield calamity. But here's the point. The point is when bad things don't happen, when we get to kick back our feet at the end of an event and say, this was great, everyone was happy, that doesn't mean that we did everything right. It doesn't mean that we are free of learning opportunities. To the contrary, the absence of a bad outcome may be (laughs) Because wait, wait. This of,
0: is the absence of evidence, it's not the evidence of
1: absence? Yeah, it, it's <laughs> the absence of evidence. So if what we learned from the proper application of the Swiss cheese model is that any one risk mitigation measure can save us from a whole series of failures, the converse is there may be a whole series of failures that we ought to pay attention to because if we got saved by one slice of cheese, well, that's great for that event. But what if that slice of cheese isn't there next time or its hole happens to be rotated in such a way that there are holes all the way through, then we're not saved by cheese. This is the reason the Swiss cheese model teaches us that there will likely be multiple failures even at events that go fine. So if we don't learn from the failures that are happening all around us, We are basically tempting fate by saying, oh, I'm not going to mitigate the risk. I'm not going to spend the money on proper meteorological science because nobody's gotten hurt trying to leave a lightning storm. Uh, That's not smart. That's not reasonable. Sorry, I'm busting out a lawyer word. Uh, Because the Swiss cheese model tells us you will have mostly fine events that look perfectly safe to the outside world, it is incumbent upon us as operations professionals to say the outcome doesn't tell the full story. I need to look at each operational decision, each operational activation to ask, did it go as it was supposed to? Did it happen safely? Whether or not someone got hurt, whether or not there's a medical report or you know some kind of after-action notation. Did we do what we said we would do? Did we do what we planned to do? And it
0: doesn't even have to be that. It could be, this happened, and we didn't expect it to go that way. Next time we should adjust, not because we didn't do what we said we were going to do or we didn't put the resources there, but uh, you know we're always learning. You know it's it's it's, it's Why you can't have an emergency plan that's the same every year because no event is ever exactly the same. They could be extremely similar, maybe a good jumping off place, but it's not the same. And you can always learn from what happened in the past.
1: So I I like to call things by their right name. I don't think it's necessarily a lawyer thing to do. I think it's just good um, because when things have a name, it suggests that The phenomenon is common enough that, well, someone bothered, Um, which if you want a pop culture reference, watch the movie Broken Arrow. And John Travolta has a line about why a stolen nuclear warhead is called a broken arrow. And the gist of it is because it happens enough that it has a name. Um, So in this instance, what we're talking about is called the normalization of deviance. Okay.
0: Explain it.
1: So I'm going to explain it now. Um, So the normalization of deviance is a term coined by a sociologist named Diane Vaughn, and we'll put this in the show notes for you. Um, And she is a professional sociologist doing real sociological research at NASA. Um, NASA brought in the sociologist to look at some of their decision-making prior to the Challenger disaster, when Challenger fell out of the sky and caused people to die, you know, a very public failure. And it turned out, you know, trip down memory lane, um, it turned out that there was an overstressed O-ring in Challenger. And the overstressed O-ring was something that the smart scientists at NASA knew about. Uh, It had revealed itself to be overstressed in various tests. And those tests were recorded and documented among the subcontractors who test such things. And the information bubbled up to the safety professionals at NASA, which is a lot of people because NASA is incredibly safe. And they knew that this particular component part in Challenger was subject to stress levels that could result in a material's deterioration in flight. Um, And, well, it never resulted in disaster um, during all of the many, many, many tests that NASA does, because it's the space organization, and they test everything a zillion times. You know, talk about Swiss cheese model. You know, it's an entire factory of cheese. Um, And they test everything, and they did, and yet, what the results showed is, yeah, this O-ring is subject to stress and subject to stress beyond our parameters and beyond what the subcontractor tells us is you know, safe for this particular component part, but look, nothing bad ever happens. So they got used to it. They got used to seeing numbers outside of parameters, and they also got used to it not making any difference to the outcome. And so they approved these numbers outside of parameters, and you know where the story is going because you know the challenger did fall out of the sky when the O-ring did fail one time when the pressure on the O-ring was outside of parameters again. And so the point of the term normalization of deviance is there was deviance from what was the stated plan? What was the actual standard for pressure on that particular O-ring? And many people said, you know, we understand that this is not as it should be, but it doesn't make any difference. So we're just going to pass on it and, you know, move on to the next thing that isn't right, because that one we see does make a difference. Mm -hmm. And eventually this thing that was wrong got approved and approved and approved until finally it was approved in the ultimate challenger that fell out of the sky. The, have, normalization, kind of a... the, the normalization of deviance is just that it becomes part of the culture. And everyone, it's not that they look the other way. It's that they don't even see it as a deviation anymore. It just becomes normalized. It becomes essentially its own parameter. And people say, well, that's okay. Um, you know, Imagine a site where nobody wears a hard hat nothing bad ever falls out of the rigging. No one gets hurt. People enjoy not having hat head. And eventually it just becomes part of the culture. And because nothing bad ever happens, yeah, you get used to it. You conclude maybe reasonably under that circumstance, you know, hard hats are kind of a thing of the past. Don't need them, bad look. Uh, There are good safety reasons that, you know, I can see better if I'm not wearing a hard hat. So, I think it's actually an affirmative good thing to not have to wear one. And you justify the deviation, the deviance from accepted safety practices, you know, whether with good intention or just lack of focus until something bad does happen. And it may not, it may not happen to you. It may not happen at all yet.
0: It doesn't, doesn't doesn't mean that the problem isn't there. It just means that you no longer see it as effectively as you could. And I can think of so many examples in our industry of of this. And um, some of them, people working on a leading edge of a stage it happens all the time. People standing with their back to the edge of the stage and looking up at things it, it well, personally, drives me bananas. I'm always like, could you move away from the edge? But, um, but it happens all the time. And people just are like, of course, I'm going to stand on the edge. And that's a, that's a tiny example. That's not the challenger story. Um, I, but I feel like
1: I could do a whole series on cable ramps. Cable I have, ramps. I have so uh, many cases involving cable ramps, which are a good thing, but are still a trip hazard of a sort. They're just less of a trip hazard and better at protecting cables than cable ramp then cables that are just sitting out loose. I mean, here's one, people working 18 hours in a row. Right. You
0: I mean, that's had a, a whole discussion about that. That's a huge that's a huge one. Um, we could talk about fatigue, but I mean, cuz it's considered normal, people don't see the the risk quite as much. And that story of the normalization of deviance at NASA was one of the, one of the first stories I ever heard when I first came across the ESA at a panel and, and that story was told and I was like it was eye-opening and it's it's just a um, it's a very effective story to explain how even some of the brightest, most intelligent people in the world managed to oversee something that they're like, yeah, hey, it's not great. And they still pass it on. <laughs> you know, and on, on the one hand, It's a little discouraging. It's like if the greatest, smartest people in the world miss this, what chance have I got? But on the other hand, it's like, even they made a mistake. So it is okay to make a mistake. It is okay to recognize that something you did in the past isn't the best way to do it. And that it's it's allowed, it's okay. It's great to recognize that there's a new way to do it that, that is safer, that is better. That may cost less and be more efficient. I mean, there's like a a million silver linings to that sort of thing. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So when I was at the weather planning for mass gatherings workshop, the subject there was the proper use of meteorological science. And, you know, Dr. Kevin Clazel, our dear friend and you know, brilliant meteorologist you know, he always starts the weather event by talking about the science of meteorology. And I'm a lawyer. I'm not smart enough to understand the full array of meteorological science that Dr. Clazel talks about, even though I've heard his rap many times and I follow it better now, but I still could never be my own meteorologist. I'm also colorblind, so I don't see the pretty colors on a phone app. But aside from that, Really, my focus was on, this is a slice of cheese that we can all have. This is a risk that we are all able to mitigate. And if we normalize the deviance from using accurate meteorological science, maybe nothing bad will happen to us this time. Usually it doesn't. What's the worst that happens? People get wet. But I've had several cases where people have been electrocuted. That is a part of my practice. I know other instances that haven't been my cases where people have gotten electrocuted or where there has been an evacuation that was delayed and the crowd movement itself became a problem. Back to part one of this podcast conversation. Um, it's an avoidable Problem. The problem of having inaccurate meteorological science is an avoidable problem. And, you know, my lawyer's shorthand, because it's all that I can remember, is phone apps are bad in two respects. One is time, they are too slow. The information is not as timely as you would get from a meteorologist who's monitoring the weather at your site. So time and tilt, um, because there are different radar beams. Um, Dr. Clazel referred to like the, the searchlight on the roof of a Best Buy, you know, luring you to come get bargains in technology. Um, uh, so these so radar, oh, Dr. Claesle's so brilliant. So we, we love Kev. <laughs> um, so The radar beams that determine what the weather is at different altitude levels, um, the meteorologists call those tilts. So there's tilt one, which is close to the ground, and then tilt two is at a higher elevation, and tilt three is at a higher elevation still. And it goes on and on. I don't know how many, but it's a lot. And the point is your phone app gives you only one tilt, um, which may be the one closest to the ground, which intuitively is the one that you care about except, and here's the the weatherman's nuance that I was oblivious to, weather develops at higher tilts than the ground. So the ground is where things ultimately manifest themselves but the weather is developing. The forecasts are based on tilts that are higher than the ground and your phone app doesn't give you those tilts.
0: I can tie this to our previous pod. It's like when I was talking about um, how you look at a crowd. If you're on the same level as a crowd, what you see is right in front of you. If you're up a little bit, you see a slightly different perspective. If you are a camera looking at a camera that's mounted on the top of the roof of the stage all of a sudden you have a totally different perspective of what's going on in that crowd and there are advantages to all of them but you have to know and this is where you call your meteorologist you have to know what those different images are telling you and you have to know which one you're looking at which a phone app does not tell you which which beam angle you're looking at Um, but it's probably the one you know because most of the time if you you need to know if to pack an umbrella. Is it raining outside? I'm assuming you don't have windows. Uh, my office doesn't have windows. I could not tell you if it's raining outside right now.
1: <laughs> it is not raining outside where I am right now. There was a forecast of snow. It hasn't happened yet.
0: It's been pouring here most of the day, so it could be, but I would have no way of knowing, is my point. Um, and that is what a phone app is good for. It's it's great for, you know, figuring out what whether or not to bring a sweater. That sort of thing, it is not good for forecasting for a major live event where your weather is going to impact your staging, your video, your crowd movements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. And you have to look no farther than the Event Safety Alliance's origin story regarding the Indiana State Fair stage roof collapse. It wasn't just people in the crowd who died. One of the seven people who died at the Indiana State Fair that day was in the rigging.
0: Yep. It was a follow spot operator had already gone up and was just waiting it out in the roof. And of course the roof came down. So we've already talked about flipping the cheese uh, upside down to get a different perspective. Um, I want to... Uh, with, with, with everyone's uh, grace and permission, which you of course can't tell me if you're not going to give me, which is great. Oh,
1: I will, Danielle. (laughs) Go for it. Tell them what you're holding in your hands.
0: I am holding Killer Show, which if you guys go back to our, our recommended books, uh, was both Steve and I's independently, our, our most recommended book uh, for people in the industry, because although you probably, well, maybe you do, but it's just as likely that you don't and have never worked in a nightclub or a bar situation like this. And this is not your aspect of the industry, and is not at all what you do. But the lessons and the story that are told in this book are extremely educational. Um, this is horrifying the story.
1: Yes. Educational.
0: Oh, absolutely horrifying. Is not. It's not technically a hard read, but it is emotionally a very hard read.
1: Um, it, it is. It, it is genuinely heart wrenching. Um, and you and know it's it's, it's it's hard to talk about. yeah. You know? <laughs> so so the author John Barulik, um intersperses basically he he weaves the story of of the horrific fire at the station nightclub back in 2003. He he weaves stories of the fire itself, the outcome of the fire on the victims, the horrifically burned victims and their loved ones and the resulting litigation. Um, you know, for non-lawyers, the resulting litigation wouldn't intuitively be fascinating to you. I beg you keep pushing through the book because the litigation is number one, super interesting the way John Barrelick wrote it. Number two is an amazing cautionary tale. Um, not like you need more incentive to work safely, but it will give you the vocabulary so you can talk to other people who have not drunk the safety Kool Aid the way you, podcast listener, doubtless have because you're spending time with Danielle and I here.
0: And we love you. Uh, but, you know, it's the story of how all these individual decisions by all these various people with totally different motivations, some of making more money, some of uh, reusing found goods, some of making it quieter for the neighbors, some of enforcing security, uh, some of giving people permission to do things that probably wasn't a good idea, but they were like, yeah, nothing bad has ever happened in the past, to trying to make the show extra shiny by putting the illegal fireworks on up, which was the last bad decision. It's an example of that system failure that we talked about in the past. Now, I will say this is a catastrophic example of of that that affected well, I think 100 people died, but many, many more people were impacted. And there's a, a very lovely uh, memorial garden on that site there, if you're ever in Rhode Island. Um, but at toward the end of the book, so I've, you know, I occasionally will flip through this book, guys. Uh, yes, I know. Um, I teach
1: it to my law students every time I teach.
0: And, and... You know, there's a couple of places that I have bookmarks or whatever, but there's only one place in the entire book that I got out a highlighter, and I don't normally highlight stuff in books, but this one section I highlighted years ago, and I was flipping through it recently. I was like, oh yeah, and I found it, and I was like, this is why I highlighted this.
1: <laughs> I don't actually know what's coming. I'm kind of All interested. Right.
0: All right. It is often said that disaster, and I'm sorry, I'm quoting the book now. These are not my words. It's often said that disasters of the scope of the station fire do not occur because just one thing is done wrong. Rather, they are usually the result of many mistakes, and that was certainly true here. The fire was a result of multiple tragic acts, the absence of any one of which would have avoided the tragedy. My list of causative blunders is a long one and can no doubt be supplemented. The illegal use of pyrotechnics, and I'm just gonna summarize here, Danielle speaking, uh, improper use of foam, overcrowding, absence of safety devices such as sprinklers, lack of training, uh, inflated maximum capacity by the fire inspector, non-enforcement of codes, design of the entryway with a pinch point, inhibiting rapid egress, Uh, manufacturers failure to warn of their products foreseeable misuse, promoters failure to observe hazards presented by the tour in previous experiences. Every one of the above failures was motivated at least in part by greed, and I'm going to skip. I was struck though, and strangely encouraged by a corollary of the above calculus. That is, that just one person or corporation doing the right thing can make all the difference in a given situation. So I'm going to stop quoting there because that part always like gives me chills and stuff, but it's, it's why we talk about what we do is because any one of us could be that one person that said, Hey, I don't think we should use the pyro here because there's all this insulation foam on the wall, you know, and that's just that one particular, but even in smaller smaller circumstances with, with less risk of mass casualty. I'm going to put some tape on this step so people can see it when they're exiting in the dark is that same care. And, you know, I think that's awesome. It fills me with hope.
1: (laughs) So I'm thinking of a corollary now to the delight that you and I take Danielle in saying save my cheese, which I do find (laughs) delightful.
0: Me too. <laughs> the,
1: the corollary is be the cheese. Oh, be the cheese. Be the cheese. Oh, we've got to have merch, guys. <laughs> we, we got to have merch. We, we we need, like, you know, be the cheese. Green Bay Packers cheese head things.
0: Jacob's going to edit all this out. Okay, cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but seriously, that, that's the notion. You know, if one can save an event from disaster by, you know, some simple risk mitigation measure that somehow breaks the chain of causation, that's what the Swiss cheese model is. It's a chain of causation. If you can break the chain of causation by some successful risk mitigation measure, then in my view, you're a hero. Mm -hmm. You know, can you imagine if there is some... Series of errors which your action defeats and saves lives. I mean, I think that's incredible. It's amazing, and frankly,
0: you guys all do it already. Um, it's and that's why our industry is actually safer, and, and why mo- why bad things don't happen at most events is because you are already doing it. So keep up the good work. And try to see the things that you're not seeing anymore. Your your normalization of deviance.
1: Wow. I, I feel like I, I want to drink now and it's <laughs> it's only early afternoon here.
0: <laughs> All right. So if you want to email us, because you know, you think we're on something or you think we missed the bat, uh, go ahead and email at podcast eventsafetyalliance.org. Our website is eventsafetyalliance.org. org. Uh, Look for us at upcoming events, follow us on social media, and stay safe, everybody.